John 8, 12 to 20. Jesus is the light of the world. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You people judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I and he who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who bears witness of myself and the father who sent me bears witness of me. And so they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for your holy word. We pray, Lord, that we'll gain understanding from this. We will trust that Jesus is the light of the world. May there not be any who hear these words from your holy word, who reject it, who make light of it, who disdain it, who walk away from it. But we pray, Lord, that this word that is preached will be implanted in every heart that hears, that every heart will believe that Jesus is the light of the world. We ask, Lord, that we'll not be like the Pharisees, skeptical and turning away and disdaining the truths of God. But may we, Lord, look at the person of Christ, look at the word of Christ, and be regenerated by the Spirit of Christ. For we ask in his name. Amen. Our passage in John chapter 8, it begins with the word again. There is a word of clarification that's necessary here. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them. Who is the them that he addresses again? Well, according to those who interpret John chapter 7, 53 to 8, 11, as not actually belonging in this place in the scripture, they would say it's the same multitude that he addressed in chapter 7 at the Feast of Booths, which is a possibility. But that possibility still exists whether or not this previous passage has its rightful place in this section. Because he is still in the temple, he's still going daily in the temple during this feast, and perhaps even after the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, the very next day, since a lot of people would still be there, even if they have to go back to their home place, their native place, throughout the country and throughout the Roman Empire, even if they have to do that, they still would have many people there in the temple, especially because Jesus was there and everybody knew him to be a miracle worker. Therefore, he addresses the crowd again. And we're going to find out in verse 13 that even the officials, the rulers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are there in the midst of the multitude. They are present. Therefore, this is addressed in the hearing of the multitude, but the main people that are the antagonists and the opponents of Christ in this passage, the main ones are the Pharisees. The Pharisees who are taught the law and teach the law to others, who know it more than others and teach it to others. Verse 12, Jesus, therefore, when he preaches, he says, I am the light of the world. Christ is the only one without being prompted and without being accused of arrogance or pride can declare something about himself. For he is God in flesh. He is God in flesh. 
So when He is God in flesh, He doesn't need to be prompted. He could be prompted, but He doesn't have to be prompted to declare a truth. Just as it was in Genesis 1.1, God did not need to be prompted. God, on His own initiative, said, let there be light, and there was light. There was no man on the earth to prompt Him or nothing else. God was the one who initiated and started the conversation. In this way, Jesus not only starts the conversation or the debate, he actually declares something about himself and something good about himself, that he is the light of the world. He is light. Now, declaring himself to be light at a time at the Feast of Booths when lights were a major component of that festival... He's drawing attention to the fulfillment of what the lampstand in the temple signified. The lampstand in the temple was not there just for show, for good looks, or for a romantic look in the temple. It wasn't there for any kind of superficial reason. The light and the lampstand in the temple was there to signify that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. It was there to signify that Jesus, in the, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the light has come into the world to demonstrate this light to others. It is Christ Himself. He is the fulfillment of all light, representations or signs in the Old Testament of light. The light of the sun is nothing compared to the light of Christ even. Whatever light there is in nature or in the temple, all is there because of the brilliant, overwhelming light of Christ. He is that light. But if we say, or if Christ says He is the light, does that not assume that there is darkness? Well, where is that darkness? That darkness, natural darkness, of course, is in the world at nighttime. But if we're talking about spiritual darkness, where does that spiritual darkness reside? It resides in you and me. It resides in all of us. That's why we need His light. Normally, when we're born into the world, all of us are born in darkness. All of us are born blind. All of us do not understand, do not receive the significance, since we are spiritually blind, we don't understand the spiritual significance or the, any kind of reality related to the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness, Christ. We don't get it. We just don't see it. Just like a physically blind man cannot comprehend what we describe about the physical light of the Son, all of us were like that. And many people are still that way. Spiritually blind they don't understand the value of what is being said or conveyed to us by Christ, the light of the world. We don't understand it. Further, he says that he is the light of the world. This includes Jews and Gentiles who benefit from this light. In John especially, but also elsewhere in Scripture, the word world does not always include every individual. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it includes every believer in the world. And that is the case here in John eight twelve. I am the light of the world. He will never be the light of those who continue in spiritual darkness in their blindness. They never hear of Him. They never believe in Him. They are still in darkness. And this light that Jesus has will not, does not, benefit them. It only benefits God's chosen ones among Jews and Gentiles worldwide and throughout all history. This is the benefit received by Christ the light. It's received in the world throughout history and around the world by those who are chosen by God. I am the light. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. 
Now, he is exhorting all of his hearers to actually follow him, because if they follow him, they won't walk in darkness. Well, already this assumes that all men walk in darkness. He's presenting to the crowd a reality that they don't want to hear, a reality that even the Pharisees, who in their own estimation, they are the most enlightened, are they not? They are the most enlightened. They have a position of authority to teach the people the words of God. So they would be the most offended. Certainly, the multitudes and the common people would be offended. But the, the offense is most severe with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the chief priests, the high priests. It would be most offensive to them because... It is a part of human nature of proud, perverse, corrupt human nature whenever an offensive thing is presented to immediately deny it. No, that doesn't fit me. How could you say that of me? That's all of us in one way or another. Whenever we heard the gospel, unless God had prepared our heart to receive it, whenever we hear the gospel or the truths of the gospel, inevitably, it produces in us an immediate knee-jerk reaction. No, you're not talking about me. You can't be talking about me. If you're talking about me, then you are the offender, not me. You're the dark one, not me. You're the offender, not me. You're hating me for telling me something that's not true about me. That's the way sinful people, dark people, respond to truth. But if we follow him, as Jesus says here, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Luke's, Luke 9, 23. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The Great Commission, Matthew 28. Matthew 28. He says, All authority has been given to me, in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. When we disciple the nations, we are teaching them to obey everything commanded by Christ. That's what it means to follow Christ. If we follow Him According to his commandments, we are walking in the light and not in darkness. Those who are characterized in that way have the light of life. The light of life. We may rephrase it by saying life-giving light. Life-giving light. That's what we will have if we are following Christ, if we acknowledge who Christ is, the light of the world. When we have that happen, we have that life-giving light within us that continues to produce holiness, righteousness, light in us. This is the way in which Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 13 to 16, he said, you are the light of the world. Ultimate light, the origin of light, the foundation of all light is God himself in Christ. There's no doubt. He is the source of light. But then we reflect his light. We reflect who he is by this life-giving light in us, which we then transfer and radiate to others around us in small portions, yet significant enough that it redeems us and it helps to redeem others. God uses it to redeem others. People will see that we are salt and light when we are connected to Christ in the correct way. We'll have this life-giving light. Now, having said this, these are strong words. These are significant words. The Pharisees, in verse 13, understand to some degree 
he is pronouncing lofty things about himself. He is pronouncing exclusive things about himself. He is pronouncing things that call for people's attention. Jesus is doing so. They know that much. Instead of reflecting on it, instead of contemplating it, instead of believing it, instead of clinging to it, what do they do? They deflect. Verse 13, deflection. Their deflection is a common deflection. Verse 13, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. You are testifying of yourself. You're bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. First, what do they mean? And then the implications of what they're doing. What do they mean? You are bearing witness of yourself. You are saying something about yourself. And if you say something about yourself, you can't use your witness about yourself your testimony about yourself in a court. The Pharisees were a part of the Jewish court, right? The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they were a part of the eldership and the teaching ministry of the nation of Israel. So whenever there was a dispute, whenever there was a question about theology or morality, the people would ultimately have to go to them. And when they went to them, they had to have two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 17.6, Deuteronomy 19.15, both assert that there must be two or three witnesses. Here, they're saying, you're talking about yourself, you're the only one, so whatever you say cannot be true or cannot be valid, cannot be presented as evidence in our court to describe your teaching as true doctrine and ours as false. You can't do that. It's, you're the only one. So it's not admissible as legal evidence if there's only one witness. So what they're saying is true. What they're saying is correct in terms of legal procedure. It is true in that sense. But that's not what they intend. And Jesus will clarify what they intend by this is not that Jesus can't say something about himself as though he has any uh, authority or does not have authority. It's not as though Jesus is a man without any authority, that he's just some kind of extremist, some kind of obscurantist, some kind of wild and crazy man, maybe a madman, a demon-possessed man. It's not as though you're talking to a crazy man you're talking to a sane man who knows the scriptures and who's telling you something. So Jesus knows that what they're saying is not completely true in his situation. And he's going to address that in just a moment. But in terms of the legalities of it, what they're saying has an element of truth. You just can't be one witness in the courtroom. You have to be two or three or more witnesses. However, how do the Pharisees use this element of truth? This speck of truth, how do they use it? They use it to deflect. They use it to stray from the necessity of having to believe in Christ. They're using it as a formal objection to avoid putting faith in Jesus Christ. This is common. This is common that people will, instead of taking the words, examining the words of the gospel, or whatever you convey about the gospel, instead of taking those words at face value, objectively, honestly, fairly, sincerely, receiving those words, what they do is they look for any little way to deflect and avoid believing in what you're saying. They will take aim at the messenger. They will take aim at the presentation. They will take aim at the tone. 
which is popular these days, the tone. They will take aim at the method. They will take aim at the circumstances. They will take aim at their own circumstances. Well, you don't understand my situation. You haven't experienced what I've experienced. So on and so forth. This is what deflectors do, detractors do. Instead of taking the words at their face value in reference to the person and work of Jesus Christ and the Word of Christ, they will find a way to avoid obedience. And that's what they do here. They just, they, they just do the same thing that we all do at one point or another. Instead of receiving the rebuke or receiving the truth, we take aim at the messenger, whether it's completely false in our retaliation or partially false in our retaliation, we avoid receiving the words of truth. The Pharisees do the same. Verse 14. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Now Jesus presents a hypothetical, a condition. He says, even if. He says, even if I bear witness or testify of myself, my testimony is true. Even if I were to do it, it would be true. And he's about to, he's implying in verse 14, and then he'll be more explicit later. He's implying in verse 14 that he's not alone. He's not the only witness. Even if you were to take me into the courtroom for your theological court case against me, you were to put me on trial, I would not be alone in that courtroom, but the Father, God the Father would be with me, which he mentions in verse 18. He mentions the Father in verse 18. The Father and the Son both would testify against the criminals in that court case. And the criminals would be the Pharisees and anyone else who are likened to them. That's what he means in 14. Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For, how do we know his witness is true? I know where I came from. Where did he come from? He came from heaven. And where I am going. Where is he going? He's going back to heaven. He came from heaven and he's going back to heaven. He knows that this was his mission. He says, for example, the same words. He says the same words later in John 16, 28. 16, 28. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. John 16, 28. He asserts the same in our passage, John 8, 14. I know I descended from heaven and I know I'm going to ascend back to heaven. I know that. I have full conviction, which also shows that Christians are not imposing their false beliefs on Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, in his own words on the earth, knew who he was. We're not imposing deity on Jesus. Jesus declared his own deity, such as right here in John 8, 14, even John 8, 12 the light of the world. He knows he originated from heaven and he's going back to heaven. He knows that. He asserts it very, very clearly. In John 8, John 8, 24, he says, I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, or I am he, you shall die in your sins. Declaring himself to be I am means he's claiming to have a divine nature, which also he declared in John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, 
I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. He declared his own deity this way. However, the Pharisees do not know where he came from or where he's going. The Pharisees refuse to believe in the divine origin of Christ or the heavenly origin of Christ. They refuse to believe he originated from heaven as God and came down to earth as a perfect man to die on the cross for their sins, to rise from the dead, to ascend into heaven, and to stay there until he returns again. They refuse to believe that. They don't know it. They don't comprehend it. They don't believe it. Verse 15. You people judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. Now Christ's accusation against the Pharisees is that they judge according to the flesh. They're not judging according to the Spirit, according to the Word, according to evidence. They are judging according to the flesh. They have, in their corrupt nature, a way of assessing, judging, making distinctions among the people that are wrong, that are sinful. He accuses them of not having no correct ability to judge people. He told them this earlier, John 7, 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. They don't judge correctly. They judge according to the flesh. They judge sinfully. They're wrong in their estimation of others. And Jesus says, I don't judge like that. When he says, I am not judging anyone, he's saying, I'm not judging anyone like that. In, in your way, in 15, Christ Jesus does not mean he never judges people. He judges people all the time. He judged people on the earth. He's going to judge people when he returns. He means he's not judging anyone according to the flesh. He is superior to them in his ability to assess, to judge, to condemn. He is. Yes, he uses his word. Yes, he uses Moses. Yes, he uses his spirit. But ultimately, Jesus is the judge of the whole world. Acts 17, 30 to 31 teaches us that. God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, having furnished proof to all men and having appointed a man by raising him from the dead. Acts 17, 31. Therefore, it's necessary to repent. Verse 16. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and he who sent me. But even if I do judge in a court of your law, if I judge in a court of your law, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and he who sent me. The Father sent him, explicitly mentioned in 18. The Father sent him, therefore, the Father's miraculous works, the Father's words through the prophets, the Father's work in the perfection of Christ, the obedience of Christ, the wisdom of Christ, that would be there on display in testimony in their court, and whatever Jesus says would be used against them in court. The Father and the Son. This means that he is even now saying, if I were to play your game, if I were to go along with you, I know that in your court of law, you would lose, you would be shown false, and I would be shown true. But it's not going to happen that way. It's not going to happen that way on the earth, because we know they ended up crucifying him. And it's not going to happen that way before it's time, as we learn from verse 20. It wasn't time yet for Jesus to experience anything with them in the courtroom. 
But if it were to happen, he's saying he would be shown true and they false. Would that not have been another offensive thing in their ears? Jesus is offending them left and right by speaking the truth and refuting them. Verse 17. Even in your law, it has been written that that the testimony of two men is true. Even in your law, your law, he ascribes the law as belonging to them or in their possession. He doesn't mean it started with them because it was God who delivered the law by the hand of Moses and delivered it to the people. It went from God to Moses to the people. Then it became their law. That's why he says your law. Your law. But when he says your law, he's indicting them. Because if it is their law, in that it's in their possession, they use it, they study it, they know it, then why don't they obey it? In your law, it says that the testimony of two witnesses is true. Where do we find that? We find that in Numbers 35, 30. Numbers 35, 30. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. It must take witnesses, plural, not one witness. Deuteronomy 17.6. Deuteronomy 17.6. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Two or three. Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. He indicts them by saying, Your law in your hands, you know that this is true, yet you're not acting in accordance with that law. You are rising up against me. You don't understand the evidence properly. You don't understand the witnesses properly. You're not investigating properly. You are biased judges when even in your law it says in Deuteronomy 16.20, justice and only justice you shall practice. But they're not practicing justice. In order to accuse Christ, they have to practice injustice. Be unfair. Verse 18. John 8.18 He's more specific now. John 8, 18. I am he who bears witness of myself and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. I bear witness, I testify of myself and my Father testifies of me. The Father, which earlier he has referred to the Father as his Father and they know so. It was his Father, Christ's Father, that caused them in John 5, 16 to 18, to want to stone Jesus to death, to kill him at that time. They were not willing to accept the assertion that God the Father, the one in whom they claimed to believe, actually was on the side of Christ and not their side. They couldn't fathom that. They couldn't fathom this idea that God the Father that they claim to believe in all their life isn't really with them, but is really with this Jesus of Nazareth, this obscure man from a tiny town that nobody knows of in a small place in the world that nobody cares about. They didn't want to believe that. But Jesus did not let them off the hook. He calls upon his own father as the sender Which means if we claim to know God and we do not correctly believe in Christ, we don't belong to Christ, 
and we don't belong to God the Father. The two are connected. There is no knowledge of God for your salvation unless you understand that the Father sent the Son and you must believe in the Son to know the Father. You cannot know the Father unless you believe in the Son, which strips away any possibility of people believing that they are fine with God, have a good relationship with God, will go to heaven without believing in Christ. It's impossible. They have to believe in Christ to go to heaven. This is a stunning statement because we're talking about the Jewish people and we're talking about the Pharisees who would have, compared to other peoples in the world, they would have had more accurate knowledge of God than the peoples of the world. They would have had more accurate knowledge of God and he's still telling them with this accurate knowledge, after all, wouldn't the Pharisees be more correct than the Hindus who worship idols and believe in hundreds of millions or if not billions of gods? Hindus believe in that, right? The Pharisees would not believe in that. So they had more accurate knowledge of God, yet Jesus tells them these people who have the law of God in their hands with the most accurate, not the accuracy that's necessary for their salvation, but more accurate than somebody else in another nation, they have that and he's taking that knowledge away from them because it has not benefited them. He says, you don't understand what you really need to understand to believe. Does it move them? Does it cause them to repent? No. Verse 19. Instead of humility, instead of a tender heart and reception, verse 19. And so, they were saying to him, where is your father? Where is your father? There is not here a simple, honest question. This is not a mere Genuine question. Where is your father? We don't have tone. We don't have commentary here right after they ask the question. We realize that. We don't have tone. We don't have commentary here, right here in verse 19. But we do have it in the context. We do have it in the context that they were not asking a simple, honest question. They weren't sincere with this. They were mocking Christ. They were stripping Christ away of any courtesy, any decency, any honor, and especially any association with God the Father. They were doing so with this question. Where is your Father? How do we know that they had that kind of attitude with the question? Well, in 19, one indication, one hint. I said we don't have anything explicitly said, but we do have a hint here in verse 19. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He's implying by this that your question isn't sincere. If it were sincere, I would have answered you so that you could know. Right? Does he not keep uh, or allow for sincere questions to be answered? Does he not? Yes. There are times when Christ does so, and at other times when he doesn't answer or he gives an implied answer, he's letting the people wallow in their sin, which is here, implied with his answer. But explicitly, Explicitly, how do we know that these Pharisees do not want him, do not believe in him? We see in John 8, John 8, Jesus says, 
that if you're freed from slavery by me, then you have freedom. But what do they say? He says, um, they say in verse 33, we are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? If they had a sincere question, they would not be objecting with this audacious statement, they've never been enslaved to anyone. They are slaves to themselves and the Romans. But they're saying they've never been enslaved to anyone. Another place is in verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. These are the same people who said, where's your father? You seek to kill me. Then they say in verse 41, they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, that is God. We were not born of fornication. We were not born out of a union of sexual immorality, which is an implication that Jesus was. In Jewish history, in the early days after the apostles, and even today, you will still find a few Jews who will say that Jesus was born by an illegitimate relationship between a Roman soldier and Mary, while Mary was engaged to Joseph. While Mary was engaged to Joseph, an illegitimate relationship happened between a Roman soldier and Jesus. We were not born of fornication. So there we have them spitefully saying things against Christ. In verse 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil. He calls them devils, little devils from the devil himself. Verse 48, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They accuse him of being from a foreign nation, the Samaritans, and a demon, demon possessed. And also in verse 55, Jesus calls them liars. He says, you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. He calls them liars. And finally in 59, they pick up stones to throw at him. Therefore, verse 19, their question was a snarky Question. It was a sarcastic question. Where is your father? You say it's Joseph. Legally, it's Joseph, but biologically, it's the Roman soldier. You claim it's God, but no. You are a Samaritan and have a demon. You claim to have your judgment to be true, but your judgment isn't true. You are a liar. Jesus said, no, you are a liar. Verse 19. Let's go back to verse 19. When they ask, where is your father? Jesus answers, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Could he be any clearer than this? If we're going to believe in God, if we're going to know God the Father, if we're going to have eternal life, there is no way to have this eternal life unless we know Christ. That's why Christ has to be preached. His word has to be preached. We have to explain him again and again and again. Christ is the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. Everywhere the Bible preaches Christ. Christ is preached. And when he's preached, it's not devoid of the Bible. We can't say we preach Christ or believe in Christ devoid of His Word, the Word of Christ. Colossians 3.16 Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. It has to be our knowledge of Christ that gives us access to the Father. If we don't come to Christ, we have no Father. Anyone who says you preach Jesus Christ too much, you mention Jesus too much, which has been said. It has been said 
of some preachers or some pastors to them, of their hearers, whether in church or on the street or wherever, that you are preaching Jesus Christ too much. We don't need to hear. We don't want to hear. We already believe in Him. We don't need to know of Christ. They say that also about the Bible. You're talking about the Bible too much in your sermons. Give us less Bible and more illustrations. Give us less Bible and more jokes. Give us less illustrations and more anecdotes. That's what we want. But no, we have to preach Christ because if people don't know Christ, they cannot know the Father. Do we really want people to be saved? If we want them to be saved and know God the Father to be in right relationship with God the Father, to be reconciled to Him, how can we do so without preaching repentance for forgiveness of sins, repentance toward God, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ? Luke 24, 46-47. We have to preach repentance for forgiveness of sins, and this repentance is toward God, Acts 20, 21, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. If we don't preach it this way, just as Jesus preached, even to his most dangerous enemies, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, he preached it right here in our passage to them, to their face. He preached it. If he preached it, if he preached his exclusive way of salvation, being himself, if he preached it, why don't we preach it if we follow him? Why don't we preach it if we believe Jesus is the light of the world? We must. As he preached, we must preach and not let up. Those who let up are jeopardizing the gospel. They are putting a compromise or mixing compromise with the true gospel. We can't do that. We must be faithful and preach Christ, Christ alone. Only then will they know the Father. Verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. The Apostle John makes us aware of the actual locality or place within the temple where Jesus preached these words. And the irony is that though he preached in the temple, in the treasury in the temple, in the quarter of the temple, the location-specific section of the temple that had the treasury, because he preached there, it's amazing that no one seized him. Why? Because Mark chapter 12, Mark 12, 41 to 44. Mark 12, 41 to 44. Mark tells us what kind of a public and major place this was. Mark 12, 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. So forth. And then he describes what the widow does. In verse 41, the multitude enter the treasury to put their money there. And among the multitude are the rich who put large sums there. And Jesus is sitting there opposite observing all this and then using his observation with the poor widow to teach a lesson on giving, right? So this was a public place. Many people traversed that place in the temple to deposit their money into the money boxes, into the treasury there, and then to walk away. And this is where Jesus is preaching and the Pharisees are listening. And who else is listening? All these other people. And this puts the Pharisees on notice because we know that the Pharisees did not want to arrest Jesus in front of a crowd because they knew the crowds liked him and they, that the crowds would rise up against the Pharisees and maybe even put the Pharisees to death with an uproar and a mob instead of letting them arrest Christ. 
They did that. That's why they did it in the dark, in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the crowd that liked Christ was not there. They aroused the mob to arrest him, but not the crowd who loved to listen to him speak and watch him perform miracles. So, in this place, Jesus, with great courage, preaches. Because he knows that at the right time, the Father will bring about his arrest and the crucifixion. He knows so. He was always this way. He always trusted God's time for things to happen. Even his own death. He trusted in God the Father. His hour had not yet come, which refers in the book of John to the appointed time when he would indeed be arrested. He would be put on trial, false trials, and then be crucified and buried and then rise from the dead and ascend to heaven. Now, he knew all of that had its own time, and that's why no one seized him. Well, if he knew that his day of death was in the hand of God, he could preach courageously. Well, there is a correlation to us, too. If God also has ordained the day of our death, should we also not preach courageously? We're not talking preach foolishly. We're talking preach courageously. There are people who preach foolishly and they come across accidents, even death. Things like that happen. Arrests and things of that nature. Those things happen because they do so foolishly many times. Not always, but many times foolishly. But when we preach courageously, we should have no fear. We should know that there is a time to live and a time to die. We should know that our, all of our days are numbered. We should know this. We should know that God has ordained when we live and when we die. And not be afraid. Preach courageously. Let's do the same. Well, we've learned here to preach Christ as the light of the world. It's Christ who is the light we must believe in Him. Without excuses, without deflections, believe in Him and preach Him this way, exclusively this way, otherwise no one has access to the Father. Preach Christ courageously. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.